The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Father in heaven, your word is like a sledgehammer that can shatter a granite boulder. By the power of your spirit, we ask you, to break open our hearts to new heights and new depths of love that accord with the heights and depths of your love for us in Christ. I pray these things in Jesus' name and for your glory and for our joy and for the good of this world. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this message is the last in a series of three. The, the, the set of three was designed to speak into our current context here in Minneapolis, uh, both in light of the coronavirus and in light of the, the, the death of uh, a dear brother of ours, George Floyd. And two weeks ago, Jason Meyer spoke from Job 2, Answering the question, what, what to say? What to say when suffering is great? And in short, Jason said from Job 2.13, nothing. Say nothing. There's a time to weep with those who weep and lament. And then last week, Dave Zuliger continued this series with a sermon uh, answering the question, where, where to look when suffering is great? And from Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, in short, he said, look to Jesus. And now this week, before we return to our First Peter series, the last question in the series is, what to do when suffering is great? What to do? And the answer I want to commend to you is what Jesus says in Matthew 5, verses 43 through 48. And I tell you, I, I, I struggled and I prayed that everyone would hear Jesus' command. That my black brothers and sisters would hear what Jesus says here as for you. And, and white brothers and sisters would hear what Jesus says as for you. And every ethnicity would hear this as for you Because the easiest way to dodge what Jesus says here is to see it as a call for your enemy to love you rather than a call for you to love your enemy. So the world was shaken by the killing of George Floyd on Memorial Day. It was captured on cell phone video an unarmed, handcuffed black man killed by a police officer kneeling on his neck, not far from here on 38th and Chicago. And in the wake of that tragedy, there have been peaceful demonstrations, marches, prayer meetings, violent destruction of property, formal meetings and conversations, calls for police reform, and even calls to dismantle the police. Everywhere we look, 
the news, the blogs, the talk shows, social media, private conversations. We're talking about this. And unless you're still numb, all of you have been shaken in one way or another by this. Some of you are angry because this is yet another example of racism alive and well in our city. And some of you are angry because you feel like you're being unjustly called a racist because you're white. Some of you are angry, or excuse me, some of you are afraid for yourself or those you love, especially your black or brown sons or husbands or fathers. because it's another instance of violence against black or brown men. Some of you are afraid because the marching crowds have been on your street. Some of you, I know, have lost your jobs because of the destruction and or you've lost your Target store or your Arby's or your corner store or your bank or your post office. Some of you are so sad that you cry and you cry and you don't want to talk to anybody about it. And some of you are so sad that you want to talk to somebody about it. These are, there's a heavy, weary sadness that comes from the all too familiar aspects of living in a racialized society where race seems to matter greatly for life experiences and opportunities and relationships. And too often, tragedy triggers calls for change and, and calls for justice, and, and then the change needed always falls short and proves elusive. leaving you with a nagging sense of hopelessness. Well, so I, I was given the assignment, what to do when suffering is great. I look in the Bible, and uh, Jesus has something to say here. If we'll hear it. What to do when suffering is great, Jesus says, love your enemies. Love your enemies. Now, it's a command to believers. It's a call that presumes that God has poured out his love into your heart by the power of the Holy Spirit through the promise of the gospel. It presumes faith that has received Jesus and is inclined to hear what he says. And, and it's a call for more love than unbelievers can muster. Jesus says, look, if, if you love only like them, what good is that? It's more. If you're not a Christian, this command is not for you, and I don't need to tell you that because you hate it. You probably hate it. Love your enemies. But if, by the grace of God, you can see the root from which this command comes 
and how it enables a supernatural enemy love that is reflective of God's love for his enemies, for you, in sending Christ to die for you, for sinners like me and like you, then perhaps you will find yourself won over by the power of the Holy Spirit into this enemy-loving love because you'll know it. You'll have received it. Jesus' answer in this text is simple to say. Love your enemies. That's simple. It's easy to understand, isn't it? Seems impossible. It goes directly against all our natural impulses. And yet... What Jesus commands here is more weighty and more powerful than the largest protest imaginable on the Washington Monument Mall. And its results are more enduring than the destruction left by angry vandals all over this city, up and down Lake Street. So so my aim here, there's nothing up my sleeve, nothing sneaky here, My aim in this sermon is to call you to love. To call you to love your neighbors, and in that neighboring love, love your enemies with a love that comes from God. Well, first let's get a sense of the context. Our text is part of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Jesus is speaking to his disciples in the midst of a large crowd and his flow of thought in the section that we're in begins in Matthew 5.20 where he says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So here Jesus is not making the ethical commands of the Old Testament any lesser He's making them greater. He's correcting the way the religious leaders of the day had weakened the commandments of God. And Jesus presses the point with a series of statements that contrast the the teachers, the religious teachers' weakening of the commandments with his own raising of the commandments. Here's the formula. He says, you've heard that it was said to refer to what the religious teachers were teaching. And then he raises the bar with the phrase, But I tell you, for example, regarding anger, Matthew 5, 21 and 22. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. And likewise, regarding lust, in Matthew 5, 27. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And he continues like that, raising the call to righteousness in regard to divorce and oaths and retaliation. And then we come to our text where he applies it to the commandment, love your neighbor. Although the Old Testament never taught hate your enemy, it was inserted in the command by the teaching of the religious leaders of the day. Why did they do that? 
well, perhaps it was because they confused it with, the, with God's specific instructions in moving into the promised land, or perhaps they added it just because it was too hard. And it was disagreeable to the sinful disposition of the human heart. For whatever reason, they added, hate your enemy, and Jesus corrects this. Matthew 5, 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemy. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies. Let's dig into it with three questions. Who, why, and how? Three questions. Who, why, and how? Who are your enemies? Number one. An enemy is someone who opposes you or is against you or is hostile toward you and perhaps you to them. Before you think that you have no enemies, just look with me at these three snapshots of enemies that Jesus is calling us to love here in this text. First, an enemy is someone who persecutes you. It's in verse 44. The word persecute means someone who harasses you, someone who oppresses you. It could be individualized or systemic harassment or oppression. The Bible uses the word uh, in these kinds of contexts. Uh, It's used for being ridiculed. It's it's, It's used for being slandered. It's what happens when you're dragged before kings because you're arrested for being a Christian. It happens when you're ran out of town. And it, it's the word used even when people kill you, persecuted. Do you have any enemies? Can you think of any who want to do you harm? Are there times when other people oppose you or ridicule you or malign you or slander you or harass you or oppress you in one way or another? You do. Somewhere along the continuum of extreme to mild, you do have enemies. But Jesus expands the category even further in verse 46. He says, For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even tax collectors do the same. So the second picture here is an enemy is someone who doesn't love you. Well, That's a lot of people. And you know the most natural thing to do when somebody doesn't love you? You don't love them back. To harden your, you you harden your heart against them. If they don't love you, in that sense, Jesus says, to you they are your enemy. Do you have any enemies? Do you have anybody who doesn't love you? 
The third snapshot is this. An enemy is someone who is not one of your friends or family members. I see it in verse 47. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. So here your enemy is is someone outside your brotherhood or sisterhood or family or outside your circle of friends. And apart from grace, the most natural thing to do is focus your love on your own, your own tribe, your own friends, your own circle, and do it at the exclusion of others who are outside of that circle. It's the natural, sinful, fallen inclination of the human heart. I met up with a longtime friend and brother. And I told him I was preaching on Jesus' command to love your enemies. And he just rolled his eyes and went silent, like, (laughs) He didn't want to hear what Jesus has to say here. He didn't want to go there. It's too hard. And yet, it's what Jesus is calling us to as his people. This seemingly impossible, supernatural, enemy-loving love. So search your heart. Do you love those who oppress you? or ignore you, or slander you, or hate you because of the color of your skin, because you're black, or because you're brown, or because you're white? Do you love only those who march in peaceful protest, or or do you love only those who don't? Do Do you love those who riot and break windows and burn buildings? are only those who don't. Do you love the person who always seems to disagree with you and challenge you? Do you love only the people with whom you see eye to eye? Do you love the person who does not share your deepest convictions? Or only those who do? Do you love only people with Black Lives Matter t-shirts? Or do you not love people with Black Lives Matter t-shirts? Do you love people who speak loudly in their cry for justice and cry out about racial inequities in our land? Or do you love only those who don't. What? Or excuse me, who are your enemies? Who, who are you to love? Uh, your enemies. Love your enemies. How, how, how? Question number two, how do we love our enemies? Well, What does Jesus have in mind here? 
Here's a quick biblical survey of how to love your enemies. First question was, who? Love your enemies. Your enemies. Broad category. Now we're on how. How do I love these people? Number one. Pray for God to bless them. Matthew 5, 44. Pray for those who persecute you. Luke 6, 28. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. So first off, pray for God to bless them. Secondly, sounds really basic now, greet them. Greet them? Yeah, when you pass by, greet them. Matthew 5, 47. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Greet them. Speak to your enemies. That's number two. Number three, grieve their troubles. Proverbs 24, 17. Do not rejoice when your enemy falls. And do not let your heart be glad when he stumbles. So number three, grieve their troubles. Don't rejoice when troubles come upon your enemies. Number four, resist revenge. We see it in Matthew 5, 39. I'll, I'll take the parallel passage, Luke 6, 29. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Romans 12, 17, I see as Paul's parallel passage to this section of the Sermon on the Mount. Romans 12, 17, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Beloved, verse 19, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay. So number four, resist revenge. Number five, readily do good to them. Three texts, I can't eliminate any one of them. Romans 12, 20, to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Luke 6, 27, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. As you wish that others would do to you, the golden rule, do so to them. And then one, I, I, they're all practical, but I really love this one because it's so practical and nitty-gritty and earthy. Exodus 23, 4. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, translated, if you find your enemy's lost dog on the road, you shall bring it back to him. <laughs> Number five, readily do good to them. Number six, seek peace with them. Romans 12, 18. 
if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. So we did the who, and we did the how. Now we're on the why in the world would we love enemies? In fact, if you love your enemies, you will be hammered for it. Hammered for it. Verse 45. Why? So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. This little verse is packed with gospel dynamite, spiritual power, divine love. Uh, the reason to love your enemies is that when you do, you show that God has really become your heavenly father and that you really are a child of God, that he has really reconciled you as an enemy and a sinner to himself, and you really are his blood-bought child. You make that evident when you love your enemies. And, and don't twist it to, well, if I love my enemies, then I am a child of God. That's not what it says. It says if you are a child of God, you'll show it by your enemy love. It's a, it's a little, it's actually a, a very enjoyable fact of parenting, isn't it? that it's inevitable that children resemble their parents, whether they're biological children or whether they're children by adoption. You'll hear things like, you know, you talk like your mother. You, you sound like your mother. Uh, you remind me of your father. Yeah, your parents are very musical, aren't you? That's probably where you got it. <laughs> so God, your heavenly father, loves his enemies. And the call here is that we might be a chip off the old block. Some theologians call it common grace, the general love that God has for all people. Every morning, God loves all people on this earth by causing the sun to rise. And all life on earth is energized by the sun. And, and the earth is warm to a life-sustaining temperature. And plants grow and animals flourish. And, and uh, ice melts in the proper time. And human life is sustained by the sun. Every morning, God faithfully does this. He, he brings the sun and blesses every one of us, all people on earth. The evil and the good. And likewise, day after day, God loves all people, sending rain in its season, in its seasons. All life on earth is sustained by rain. Without water, life on earth would cease to be. But with rain, plants grow and animals flourish and lakes fill up and human life is sustained every day. God is doing this. He is showing his love to the evil and to the good, to those who love him and those who are his enemies. And more, 
God loves his enemies with saving grace. As a believer, you know this. You know this love of God for us in Christ, Romans 5, 8. But God shows his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, how much more that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. In other words, by redemption, we know the enemy-loving love of God for us in that Christ died for us while we were enemies, while we were sinners, and he reconciled us to himself and gave us the gift of the Holy Spirit to trust him and believe and receive him and become his children now and forever. We know his enemy-loving love. And if we know it, we will show it. That's why. What does it look like? What does it look like to love your enemy? I want to leave you with two historic pictures from recent Christian history. It conveys some of the reality of what Jesus is calling for in this commandment, love your enemies. One is a moment of historic repentance, seeking forgiveness and reconciliation from a large, historically white Christian denomination, and the other is a moment of historic love and forgiveness and expression from a historic, influential black church. At the Southern Baptist Convention's 150th anniversary, the largest Protestant denomination in America overwhelmingly approved a statement entitled, Resolution on Racial Reconciliation. Now, quoting from the statement, it reads in part, Be it resolved, that we unwaveringly denounce racism in all its forms as deplorable sin. Be it further resolved that we lament and repudiate historic acts of evil such as slavery from which we continue to reap a bitter harvest. And we recognize that racism which yet plagues our culture today is inextricably tied to the past. And be it further resolved that we apologize to all African Americans for condoning and or perpetrating, perpetuating individual and systematic racism in our lifetime. And we genuinely repent of racism of which we have been guilty whether consciously or unconsciously. Psalm, what does the psalm say? Forgive my hidden faults. Be it further resolved that we ask forgiveness from our African-American brothers and sisters, acknowledging that our own healing is at stake. And be it further resolved that we hereby commit ourselves to eradicate racism in all its forms from Southern Baptist life 
and ministry. I believe that's one step. A declaration of a direction for a large denomination to go, that's a step in the call to love, in, in, in transcending the historic racial divide, an enemy-loving love that crosses over. In fact, I, just this week I saw a little church in Houston in light of the George Floyd situation, little church, little white church in Houston met with a black church in Houston in a park. All social distancing was appropriate, trust me. And uh, the white church, well, they were praying together. The white church prayed for forgiveness from God and from the black church. And, and they closed by singing together and worshiping together and the tears and the joy and it was and the comments on the web ripping that white church. You are betraying your race. How dare you apologize? This is a call for Christians to show the reality that they really are children of God. Search the web. You're not going to find lots of happy examples of this that people celebrate. Needle in a haystack. But don't take your cues from what's on the web. Take your cues from what Jesus says. Second illustration. What does this look like? This one's from a wounded people who, like Christ, forgive the undeserving and resist vengeance and leave vengeance for the wrath of God. June, June of 2015, on a Wednesday night, a 21-year-old white man drove his car bearing Confederate license plates into the parking lot of one of the oldest black churches in America, Emmanuel African, African Methodist Episcopal Church, Emmanuel AME Church in, in Charleston, South Carolina. Mother Emmanuel, as it was called, was just about to begin their Bible study. He was the first white man ever to attend the Bible study, they said. And he was well received and stayed through the whole meeting and immediately after the Bible study was over, he took out a gun and killed nine of the Bible study attendees. Three survived. Shortly afterward, he was arrested. Now, two days after the shooting, two days afterward, he appeared at his bond hearing in a packed courthouse. And the families of those who had lost loved ones were present. At the end of the hearing, the presiding judge did something unusual for a bond hearing. He invited representatives of the families of those loved ones who had been murdered to speak. Ethel Lance, whose mother had been killed two days before, stood up and spoke. Quote, 
I just want everybody to know, to you, I forgive you. You took something very precious from me. I will never talk to her again. I will never be able to hold her again. But I forgive you. God, have mercy on your soul. Pastor Anthony Thompson, whose wife had been killed, also spoke. He said, I forgive you, and my family forgives you. But we would like, we would like you to take this opportunity to repent. Repent. Confess. Give your life to the one who matters the most, Jesus Christ, so that he can change it and change your attitude. And no matter what happens to you, then you'll be okay. Do that, and you'll be better off than you are right now. And, and you know, the people of this church these loved ones, I mean, the, the, the people who've lost loved ones, they got hammered, criticized. Anthony Thompson wrote a book in which he explains, I chose to forgive knowing exactly the appalling significance of the incident, the heartache, the sadness, and the deep, nagging loneliness of having my best friend and life companion so violently snatched away. I was not oversimplifying my difficult decision to forgive, to pardon the shooter, but I chose to pardon him of this horrific sin as my heavenly Father had shown his mercy to me a sinner. And he goes on. He said, surely a Christian must live his entire life looking through the lens of biblical forgiveness, experiencing the inescapable cruel realities of being human, and beginning the many emotional restorative journeys that must follow. One reporter wrote of the scene in the courtroom, even atheists had to see divinity in these families built by love. God was there in that courtroom, if he's anywhere. Brian Ivey, who was so moved by this story that he directed a documentary film entitled Emmanuel, it's available online, he was asked by a Washington Post interviewer, what was different about this story? And he answered, it was that they loved him. It was this moment when survivor Felicia Sanders said something to him that really changed me. She said, quote, we enjoyed you. And then, Brian Ivey continues, when I go out and talk about the film, I'm not just 
talking about them forgiving him because they wanted to be emotionally free from him. I'm talking about a kind of love you rarely see. Their love for the shooter was a love that said, I will bear the full weight of the wrong, which is the highest kind of love, a love for your enemy, end quote. What does it mean to love your enemies? I'll tell you what it doesn't mean. It does not mean that you don't care about sin. We must care about sin. We must care about injustice. We must care about evil. It doesn't mean that we do not cry out for justice. We must speak up for systemic change, for justice, and we must stand up for what's right and hate what is evil. It does not mean that we do not call for righteousness. We must confront sin and racism and prejudice. It does not mean that you're giving up and submitting to oppression and, and minimizing offenses and that you're cowardly or that you're damning your own people to shame or that you're betraying your own race. It doesn't mean that. What does it mean? It means that, that as you pursue justice and, and call for righteousness and cry out to God in your tears and, and work to change this world and, and labor to see racial and ethnic harmony in the church, it means that as you do all those things, you do so from a heart that loves your enemies. That's what it means. And by doing so, you show, we show, the reality that we have a God who loves his enemies. In fact, he loved you, and he loved me, and he called himself to us in Christ, and we truly are his children by the indwelling power of the Spirit and the promise of the gospel. And therefore, and thereby, we love our enemies, and hence we show that we belong to our Father. Let me pray. Father in heaven, thanks so much for your word. This is a simple word, and it's an impossible word, apart from your grace. Father, I pray that you would break the sinful cycle of racism by the power of your enemy-loving love and your sinner-reconciling love. I pray that, that you would glorify yourself by drawing many, many, many to Christ across our land, and I pray that you'd mobilize your church with your love in our hearts, with your love having been poured out into our hearts. I pray that we would be chips off the old block, that we would love our enemies like you have so loved us. Jesus commanded us, love your enemies. Now we ask you, enable what you've commanded. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others. 
but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.